Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to talk with an extraordinary woman who is working on COVID-19 on two fronts. First, a therapy for people in the hospital, adopted or adapted, I might say, from work she has done on muscular dystrophy. And the second attack on COVID, if you want to phrase it that way, will be with a vaccine that she and her company are developing. Here is the interesting frontline fighter, Linda Marban, Chief Executive Officer of Capricorn Therapeutics in Los Angeles, and she has had a most extraordinary career. Linda, would you like to tell us the high points of that career? Thank you so much, Llewellyn. Um, I feel um, eternally grateful for the career path that I've had. I started off life actually as an elementary school teacher um, and then decided that I was called to science. Um, it was sort of the confluence of uh, curiosity and also the desire to learn more about medicine and the idea of, of making people's lives better or longer. Um, I started on a trajectory where I was living in Ohio, uh, where I went to graduate school. Um, I raised four children um, and went to graduate school, barely surviving on a graduate student stipend of $19,000 per year. And I actually still tell my children the story of uh, taking my physiology exam um, the morning after my children had been up all night uh, with the stomach flu, um, barely being able to drag myself in. So graduate school was a, a long journey uh, with four small children. And then I was lucky enough to get a postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins University and the laboratory at Eduardo Marban, who um, had been um, a leader in the space and, and someone whose work I had been following since my introduction to science. He was a cardiovascular physiologist of, of the highest regard, and so I was lucky enough to secure a position in his lab as a postdoctoral fellow. Moved on to junior faculty at Johns Hopkins where I studied cardiac muscle physiology, so basically what causes heart disease and how we could potentially fix heart disease. But I always had the bug to go into research. So very early into my tenure academically, I was recruited to uh, work in a gene therapy startup that was working on gene therapies for cardiac arrhythmias out of Johns Hopkins University called Exogen. And this company was funded by a company called Genzyme. And so I uh, said I went to biotech boot camp. I basically learned um, how to build um, a startup company by um, learning from those that were already um, actively involved in business development and um, also product development at Genzyme. And then somewhere along the journey in that early stage gene therapy company where uh, gene therapy was really having trouble getting launched, we couldn't figure out how to get genes into those viral vectors in those days and how to get them to express and the regulatory pathway was long and torturous. Um, we came across the technology that became the foundation of Capricor um, in the Isle of Capri, hence the name Capricor, um, and we found these cells that seemed to have healing properties in terms of managing cardiac dysfunction. So in these little mice that we treated with the cells, uh, we were able to see that if they had uh, experimental heart attacks, the heart attacks got smaller and better. Uh, the Italian scientist, her name was Elisa Messina, who had done this groundbreaking work, then came to Johns Hopkins where she spent over a year perfecting it, along with uh, somebody who uh, became one of the foundational employees of Capricor, uh, Rachel Ruckteschel-Smith. Um, and the combination of those women led to the founding of the company Capricor, 
Um, I helped to found the company, bringing the in intellectual property from uh, University of Rome at La Sapienza and Johns Hopkins University, founded the company um, and began to build it uh, back in the days when we thought the cells that we had were a stem cell, and the stem cells would then go in and fix broken tissue, so to speak. Uh, what we learned along the way is that the cells don't work by stemness. Our cells work by releasing exosomes, which are nanometer-sized lipid bilayer vesicles that uh, mediate cellular communication and drive healing through changes in protein uh, expression, protein translation. So that's sort of the five-minute elevator version of, of how I got to where I am today. Well, it's pretty remarkable. And Capricor uh, has, uh, is working on a, 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 an anti- uh, well, uh, an inoculation against COVID-19, and also a treatment, a therapy for use in the hospital, which is the repurposing of a drug that you've developed for uh, muscular dystrophy. Um, tell us about those two things, and also a little bit more about Capricor. Capricor has about 30 employees. Our market cap is hovering right now around $100 million. We've been around for a little more than a decade and we've moved through sort of the torturous waters of cell therapy. Um, I spoke a few moments ago that when we founded the company, we thought that we were developing a stem cell therapy for heart disease. Um, we had um, the nimbleness um, and the ability to move quickly as we understood the science better and we moved our products forward. So we moved quickly off the concept of stem cell therapy to the idea of cell therapy using our cells to um, combat injuries to tissues, and what we learned about ourselves is that they are profoundly immunomodulatory. That means they help balance out the immune system. And so, really, anti-inflammatories have certainly their place in therapeutics. We've all taken Motrin for a headache. Um, but in reality, when you have muscle injuries or injuries to certain tissues, you don't necessarily want to knock down all inflammation. You want to knock down bad inflammation and encourage them those pathways that stimulate repair. So believe it or not, in your body, certain inflammatory pathways stimulate repair. Our cells slow down the bad stuff and speed up the good stuff. So how did that take us from Duchenne muscular dystrophy to COVID-19? Well, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a genetic disorder where the primarily boys and young men, it's over 90% of the patients are boys and young men, it's because it comes on the X chromosome, it's called X-linked, and it's typically from their moms. And what you see then is that they don't make dystrophin, which is the largest protein in the body, and the cells can get injured very easily and break down. And when cells break down, the immune system sees that something bad is happening. So that stimulates all kinds of inflammation. So these patients are battling two phenomena all the same time. One, the lack of dystrophin leads to cellular injury, and two, the breakdown of the cells leads to inflammation. So our cells, CAP1002, are able to manage both sides of that coin. They're able to calm down the inflammatory pathways, stimulate endogenous repair, and then support new muscle development, which is why we've seen such positive data in our clinical trials for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Okay, so you're thinking, okay, but COVID-19 is a virus. A virus is killing people. What does that have to do with any of this? Well, really what's killing people and making them so very sick is not just the virus, it's the sequelae that comes. It's the cytokine storm, we call it, or the hyperinflammatory syndrome that occurs afterwards. So basically, if you can think about it this way, the virus goes in and weakens the body. 
and the immune system starts fighting and they fight hard. And sometimes even as the virus abates and it goes away, the immune system has been revved up so much it can't calm down. And that's what stimulates these terrible things like what we call ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is the pneumonia that you typically see with COVID. Our cells are very good at dealing with those inflammatory consequences. Again, harking back to the mechanism of action, calm down bad inflammation, stimulate good in immune system responses so that we have healing occurring. And what we're going to be doing then is in our future efforts in COVID is targeting those patients that are at greatest risk. So those that are coming out the backside of the virus but aren't fully in cytokine storm yet. So we have a chance of driving them back sort of from that colloquial cliff of uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, in chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, which I've taken an interest in for 10 years now because friends are afflicted, uh, one of the concerns is there isn't enough research, i.e. not enough money. I wonder what you do if you get the money. Uh, is the talent there to tackle other diseases? So this is um, a conundrum that you've raised, Llewellyn, which is one that causes great consternation to those of us that are deep in the space. It takes money to build therapeutics, whether it be from an academic lab or in a corporate lab. But in a corporate lab, what we have to do is we have to continually fight for the right to stay alive by raising money. And the way that we do that is we establish milestones. And you have to hit your milestones so that you can get more money to keep moving forward. Unfortunately, in diseases like chronic fatigue syndrome, it's very hard to do one of the most important milestones, which are clinical trials. So it is actually probably the um, worst case scenario for those poor people that suffer from this because it's a disease without a clear projective pathway, not clear symptoms, not clear trajectory, and not um, terminal. So you have a situation where you can't build a clinical trial that can be done in some reasonable amount of time with a reasonable number of people to develop therapeutics specifically for something like that. So it falls by the wayside. And there's also, let's face it, a lot of hand-wringing that goes on when you have something that doesn't have specifically a biomarker. So I haven't studied chronic fatigue syndrome in a long time, but I had a great interest in it a long time ago. And unless things have moved uh, specifically, um, there was really no way to measure it. So it was sort of cast off as a sidebar to depression or something head scratching or something related to you know, a mental illness uh, pathway as opposed to something that was physiologic. And yet these poor people that are um, impacted by it are suffering terribly physically. Um, and so we don't have a good meeting of the minds in terms of developing therapies for uh, chronic fatigue, as, as I'm aware of today. Let me go back to when you were explaining what Capricor does and the, the vaccine. Uh, how are you coming with the vaccine? And as there are 100 vaccines under development, uh, how will one of them get out in front, assuming that they all work or that half of them work or that 10% of them work? So it's a very competitive space. Of course, you've taken every um, scientific mind um, literally worldwide to work on this. So why would a baby company with a $100 million market cap like Capricor 
want to work on this? Well, it's because I believe, we believe, um, and our science team believes that we have a way of building this vaccine that could be much more beneficial than what's currently being used. So basically, everybody um, in the space um, is working on several um, opportunities, and they're all slightly different variants of either a live attenuated vaccine, um, a killed vaccine, a killed viral vaccine, or a recombinant vaccine. Um, or a virus-like particle vaccine. And we are working on both the recombinant and the virus-like particle vaccine. Now, why would we work on this when Pfizer's working on it and Moderna's working on it and some of the other big pharma companies are, are actively uh, working on these technologies? Because we have something called an exosome. So if you remember a little bit ago, I told you that along our scientific journey, we discovered that the mechanism of action of our cells are through these exosomes. And exosomes are actually the words of cells. They are tiny little particles, nanometer sized lipid bilayer vesicles. They're a millionth of a million millimeter that were discovered in the 90s and considered to be the trash can of the cell. And then somewhere about 10 years later, they were opened up and somebody looked inside and the prescient scientist said, this is not trash. This um, material inside these exosomes are actually for communication. And so it opened up a really now 15-year journey into understanding the exosomes. And what they are are nature's perfect delivery vehicle. So for 30 or more years, we've been looking at ways to deliver technologies or products or um, proteins to the nucleus. And now using the exosomes, we can do this. We can get across the cell membrane all the way through the cell and then change how a cell functions by using these exosomes. So we realize that we'll be a second generation vaccine candidate. We are excited about that. Um, it's very unlikely that almost anything out there will work perfectly and certainly won't work in the short term. And we believe if the data continues to bear fruit the way it currently is, that we have a way of building this vaccine that's not only unique, but more effective. Linda, how many uh, diseases do you think might be helped by collateral discoveries while chasing after a cure or a therapy for COVID-19. It's interesting that you asked that because it's one of the things of great discussion. It should really change vaccine development for all time. Um, hopefully it'll change how flu vaccines are made. We should be able to make an Ebola vaccine, maybe even you know the, the hardest of all an HIV vaccine because we should now learn how to actually do it, how to make them in large quantities and then how to quantify their effectiveness. So vaccines have sort of been the poor sister in the development of technologies for a very long time. Nobody cares very much about it. There are companies out there that were barely staying alive trying to develop flu vaccines that now have market caps that are in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars because we all of a sudden as a society realize how important it is to be able to protect ourselves against the pathogen. Tiny little virus can cause so much death and destruction. And uh, uh, how do you work? When you're looking at cells, do you look through electron microscopes? Do you look through optical microscopes? Do you, do you squint? I, I mean, this is all a mystery to those of us who are not in the world of cells. So we are um, scientists. I always tell my students are professional sleuthers. We're detectives. Um, and what we do is we take advantage of the armamentarium that we are um, offered, which is that we can take 
um, signals like light, like sound, like um, physical properties and turn them into ways of measuring something that is too small to see, but then something that we can then measure, like for instance, emitted light um, is a wonderful way. And that's how we can kind of quantify um, whether somebody has a virus. A PCR, everybody is now talking about a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction. It's how we're measuring whether we um, have COVID or don't have COVID. It basically takes a little tiny section of a gene and then amplifies it up many, many times until you can see it. And then when you see it, if it's there in your sample, you can measure it and then you know the patient has COVID. So we use a lot of things in the lab. Um, we use microscopes, as you said, optical microscopes. We use electron microscopes if it's something that's too small to see optically. We use light and we use sound and we use all kinds of imaging technologies um, in order to be able to track uh, where things are going or how they're functioning. And then we use straight on beautiful physiology and I'm a physiologist by training so um, it's my sweet spot but we look at whether a mouse can run farther or longer on a treadmill for instance in our Duchenne muscular dystrophy program that's how we learned that our cells were working. Our mice could run or we look for their ability to mount an antibody response. We can take a little bit of blood and we can look for it and whether it lights up. If we have a little bit of um, light, then we have a little bit of antibody. If we have a lot of light, we have a lot of antibody. And so um, that's how the trajectory is. It goes from very small um, observations in petri dish or test tubes all the way through animals uh, where we can safely test whether or not we're going to see the same thing we're going to see in you and me. When do you think you will have uh, be positive about your vaccine? Well, as I just mentioned, it's greatest steps along the way. The first step is to look as to whether our vaccine candidates will make antibodies. Um, we're pretty confident that's going to happen and that's coming very soon. Then we have to do a viral challenge. So you put them typically into non-human primates um, at the vaccine, you vaccinate them and then you expose that's them. That's the, the poor old monkeys. That's right. Um, we use monkeys and we don't do it. We, we have a very special facility that does it and then they are exposed to the virus. And if they don't get it, then you can declare a success and then you go into humans. Um, if all things go well, we expect to be in humans with our, with our vaccine candidate in the early to mid part of 2021. What about off-label uses? What are called off-label uses? How are we going to find a way of finding medicines that exist and repurposing them? Well, it's a multi-pronged answer to a very complicated question. So many wonderful compounds are left on the shelf because they fail in clinical trials. And we've built this system really over the past 50 years of clinical trialing where we really have to put our chips on the black or the red circle and hope that the therapeutic delivers what we've asked it to in the way that we think it should. Um, in order to take it forward for a certain indication. If it fails there, it doesn't mean it's a failure as a drug. It means it didn't meet that endpoint. So our shelves, not ours at Capricorn, but our shelves in sort of the colloquial world of drug development are filled with these compounds that work, but we haven't really elucidated how to measure that they work. In terms of off-label uses, those compounds that are on the shelf aren't usually being used for that because they're not approved yet. If they've been approved, that's when off-label use comes into play. And generally, we typically know the mechanism of action at that point. And then it's sort of matching those puzzle pieces together. You know, I've got 
um, an anti-inflammatory that works in spinal cord injury, um, and now I've got a muscle that has um, inflama inflammation going on, maybe this will work and you can try it and see um, if it does work, and then a physician has a way of prescribing it. It has economic impact because we don't know how to quantify how much to charge for that or how to qualify whether it can be actually used for that purpose. So then we have to go back into the clinic to do another clinical trial to get that specific indication on the label. That's fascinating. Are we going to see, because of megadata, because of our ability to manage data, are we going to see uh, better uses of what we've already discovered? Yes, I think that's very, very true and very likely, and it's already starting to happen, uh, where compounds can be pulled down off the shelf and used and redeployed um, for uh, many different uses. And I think that our treatment of disease will become more targeted um, and more successful. Now, I am a huge believer, obviously, I run a company that's developing an exosomal-based platform therapeutic. Um, I think exosomes will change biotechnology the way that antibody therapy did. Exosomes are perfectly suited as nature's uh, communication device or delivery vehicle to be packed with different molecules for repair, for healing, for changing gene expression, for pretty much anything you can think of. And as we begin to harness their power, I think we will be able to have more directed therapeutics that um, have fewer side effects as we can direct them exactly to where we need them, as opposed to, for instance, taking something uh, to kill the pain in our knee, um, but because we have to um, deal with all of the pain receptors in the body, um, we end up feeling groggy and tired and, and non-functional. So hopefully, we'll be able to direct painkillers directly to the knee um, and still be able to, to have pain relief and function. How does your company get its money? It's an investor-owned company, so presumably it's always got the money in the market. It, it doesn't work on government grants, right? So we've gotten a lot of government grants over time. It's how we really built the company. So as I mentioned, we were sort of founded and, and did our you know, toddler and uh, early childhood development in um, stem cell therapy space where nobody was putting any money. Um, we were very lucky to have some brilliant people working with us at the time that were able to write grants. And so I think, um, and I could be wrong on this, so uh, you have to check our filings, but I think we've gotten about $60 million in grant money over the uh, last, let's call it five to 10 years. Um, but we also now are publicly traded, and so you know we typically raise money from investor base, just like anybody else that's public, sell, sell stock, and, and ultimately raise our money that way, and that's how we keep our lights on. Um, talent. Talent is finite. We, we think it's infinite, but it's not really. We get talent from all over. In medicine and science, we get a lot of talent from the immigrant communities. Uh, I think that there's often a shortage of talent so happens there's a shortage of talent coming into journalism because the economics are terrible. Uh, there's a shortage of talent maybe in politics because the uh, <coughs> scrutiny is awful. It's another subject. Uh, how do you feel? Will COVID have an unintended consequence that it will stimulate people not to go, not, not to become just doctors and clinicians, but to become what you are, a research scientist? somebody who looks into the very basis of things and how they are and why they are. I hope so. Um, one of the um, most pleasurable activities I've had outside of my own science 
in my career was when I was on the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine admission committee. And as I would interview uh, the incoming med students, I noticed year after year they all, and I mean all, had a story that was personal that drove them into medicine. A sick relative, a sick sibling, somebody close to them that died, something that happened in their life that made them turn on this way. And I'm hoping that something similar happens now with young people and science. You know, this tiny little virus is wreaking havoc globally. We can't even go out for dinner because of this virus. Hopefully young people will be turned on to the idea that they can make a difference by going into science and actually sleuthing, doing the detective work to make it better. Are you developing an exosome map, a green map? So um, we're working in conjunction with Dr. Stephen Gould at Johns Hopkins University. He's been a world leader in the development of exosome-based um, science, uh, really since exosomes were discovered 20 years ago. Um, to work with Steve is an ultimate pleasure because there's very little that uh, he hasn't thought of or worked on in the exosome space. Mapping what's inside an exosome is interesting if you're going to use that as your therapeutic, and we do. We've done that with our exosomes made by our cells. But really what we're doing now is custom loading the exosome. So we're taking what we want to be carried in the exosome. In this case, it would be, for instance, um, the message uh, for uh, COVID-19 to build a vaccine, but we can put almost anything inside there to derive um, a biologic response. And so we're less interested in what's already there and more interested in what we're putting in there. Interesting. Uh, finally, are we going to come out of all this with a much greater reverence for science? Are we going to take experts seriously? Are we going to stop bodies like the anti-vaccination movement and other really hard to understand um, social forces? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, the popular press is so filled with information right now that's so wrong. And I think a lot of the stress that we feel as a society is we just don't know what to believe. Um, and I think social policy has not helped us. And I will say from you know, a top-down approach, our administration hasn't helped us. You know, we've been in wars in this country where our president couldn't stop the war, but he could at least make us feel like somebody was thinking about how to fight the war. We are on a worldwide war against this little virus, and we will ultimately win. Um, how that happens and when that happens is uh, yet to be determined. In terms of driving people to be more curious about science, for me, it's a life passion, so I can't imagine being a 10-year-old girl or young boy and waking up this morning and not thinking how to make the world a better place and, and help with the opportunity to build science. So I know in my own family, my five-year-old granddaughter um, almost every day says, Grandma, when are you going to get the shot so I can go back to school? <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I want to tell you, Linda, that I've been introduced interviewing people for decades, too many decades, and you are one of the most extraordinarily articulate interviews I've ever conducted. Oh, that makes me feel so good. Thank you. It's been a busy quite, week. and so Quite remarkable. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. That is our show for today. Thank you for coming along. Please take care whether you live in a small farming community or in a great city. The virus 
is not a respecter of locations. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.